Today, we have a special interview with musical superstar Biff Naked. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, what I normally do is I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. But today is a very special episode. Today, we will be interviewing Canadian music icon Biff Naked. We'll be talking to Biff about her life, her career, and her battle with breast cancer. Then on our next episode, we will have a deep dive discussion about breast cancer. And we thought this was the perfect matchup because October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm really excited to have Biff Naked on. I am a huge fan of hers from way back in the day. I can remember, you know, seeing her first video that I saw on Much Music, which is the equivalent of MTV in Canada, in the mid to late 90s and it was daddy's getting married which was her first kind of song and i remember seeing it and thinking who is this person because she has a very unique look she has a cleopatra bang she has like lots of tattoos and i know that is not uncommon these days but back then we're talking like 20 years ago or so 20 plus years ago that was not a very common look nowadays everybody has has tattoos everywhere like on, on their you know sleeve tattoos for everyone it seems but it was not yeah. a common look and that and that person being a major star having a, a prominent video on much music in Canada just, it wasn't that common so yeah. she caught your eye her music was was unique that whole old kind of girl punk rock aesthetic again she was one of the trailblazers absolutely and that's why we're very excited to have her on you've also read her memoir we're going to talk to her about that yeah we're going to get into a, a little bit of a, a dive into her life We're pleased to welcome singer, writer, entrepreneur, activist, the trailblazing Biff Naked to the show. Biff, welcome to Doctor versus Comedian. Oh my gosh, it's such an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. We need more guests like Biff. Such an honor. That's what we need to hear. It is huh? an honor. Oh, it is an honor. You guys are like really, really cutting edge. The stuff you talk about, I want to hear. Oh, you're so right. kind, Biff. And Liz, you know, I've been a fan of yours since the very beginning. In our intro, before you came on, I was talking about when I first saw you on Much Music, Daddy's Getting Married. I saw that video and I was like, as most people did, who is this person? This music is amazing. You had such a unique look, especially I was telling Ali, like, rewind back to where we were in the late 90s, right? And lots of people have tattoos now. Lots of people have that look, but not back then. You were a trailblazer. And well, this leads me to my first question. So there is this South Asian connection. And a lot of people may not know this about you. And of course, Ali and I are both South Asian. So in Daddy's Getting Married, which again was the first song that I ever heard, the first line, my mama followed her lover to India, the mongoose and the rotiwala on your front porch. 
And I heard that. I'm like, what did she just say? <laughs> and then I didn't think much of it. And then, of course, I picked up I Bificus, which was your big breakthrough album. I love that album. I saw you on tour for that. I called the office in London, Ontario, like years ago. And then there's Choti. is a very emotional song. All the emotional uh, drained out of it completely when you pronounce it that way, Asif. But, but yes. Well, uh, <laughs> Anyway, and so that's another Hindi word. And so maybe you could tell us a bit about the South Asian connection, because I don't know if a lot of people know about that. Well, my Hindi's terrible, which it really shouldn't be. But I think a lot of kids who grew up in North America probably have the same experience. So I was adopted by this couple from Minnesota and South Dakota who were living and working in Bareilly, which my father, when he was in peace, he's a very funny man. And he always used to joke that every time he told anyone he was living in Bareilly, they pretended he was crazy. Because there was a big mental health hospital there. What area? Of, oh, that's very funny. Really, that's what it was associated with. What yeah, province? What area of India is that in? So this is in Uttar Pradesh. It's a little bit, I think it's east of New Delhi. I was born in New Delhi because my birth mom was, like me, a very friendly teenager. <laughs> so her parents were living and working in New Delhi. And they had three grown children who were all in high school in New Delhi. They were from Ontario but we're living and working in New Delhi. My parents, the United Methodist Church was paying my dad's salary, but they weren't really missionaries because my dad was a dentist. So he was at this mission hospital through Christian medical colleges that are peppered throughout India. And he was fixing teeth, basically, and training dental therapists in India. So that's the work that he was doing. And my mom was there. They adopted my sister, Shireen, a year before I was born. So my father likes to tell the story that they were pegged as suckers. And mm. the church knew that they had a soft spot for kids, babies. And basically they knew about my birth mom going to be delivering the coming months. And so they, my dad said, yeah, if nobody else wants the baby, we'll take the baby, basically. And that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And is that an example of your father's sense of humor, calling himself a sucker for adopting you and your sister? Is that oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting. So when they went, they had to drive to the Holy Family Hospital in New Delhi the day I was born. It was about a four-hour drive. And uh, when they arrived, they were the only white people that walked into the front doors of the hospital. And they were handed a white baby. So there was no paperwork, nothing really exchanged, or nothing signed. And then they went on their merry way. So we continued to live in Bareilly for the next couple of years. And then they were ready to return to the United States. And my father was actually applying for a dental program in the Congo. Another long story, but we moved to Canada instead. But they hmm. couldn't get me out of India because I had no paperwork. So right. a lot of the authorities thought they had stolen me. And so it was a bit of a long process. But eventually, through my birth certificates and their faith in God, he says, they got me out of the country. But then I spent the rest of my adolescence trying to go back. And eventually I did. Long story. But yeah, that's my connection. My sister's a brown kid. I'm the white kid. <laughs> and then my parents had their own child right. once they were back in the United States. Yeah, my parents wanted to, my dad was a bit of theologian and wanted us to always maintain an opportunity to become whatever we wanted, whether it was Hindu, Baha'i. Christian like them, whatever the case. And also with languages, he was fluent in Urdu, Hindi, Punjabi, Japanese, Spanish. I mean, 
he could just and dogs he probably spoke if you can hear Grace barking. <laughs> but yeah, he was a great influence in my life. I grew up reading the Merck Manual because he had every copy that was ever published. Yeah, it was just they were a great influence. My Hindi sucks. Uh, my Farsi is better than my Hindi. Oh no, no. But again, it's just baby talk. And for our listeners, I do believe, now I don't know enough about dogs, but I'm quite sure that your dog and Asif's dog are trying to make friends through <laughs> the Zoom link, the Zoom room that we're in. So this is much friendlier than it might appear. Nobody's trying to attack anybody in the background. You know, you mentioned music and your Indian background. And speaking of background and identity, very interesting thing that I saw. You worked with Toronto Tabla Ensemble. Yes, Ritesh. Yes. I took tabla lessons with Ritesh. Wow. I love that dude. I My um, cousin brought me tablas back from Pakistan. He had wow. red, purple straps on his shoulders from carrying these tablas on the plane. Unreal. Unbelievable. He brings them back. I start taking these lessons, but I cannot sit cross-legged. Oh, I see. I just don't have the hip flexibility. So every time I would play a note for Ritesh and I would play it well and I'd be so proud of myself. I'd be like, what do you think? And he would just look at my knees and my legs and be like, I can't, I just can't. I can't. Cause I'm like, I'm spread eagled around the tablas, you know, it was yeah. like very unorthodox to say the least. I actually loved that guy. And I thought it was so great that you worked with him. And I just wanted to give him a, a shout out too. And you know, people should definitely look into your work, your collaboration with Toronto Tabla Ensemble. I'm going to ask Thank you about you. your memoir also. That's another thing that I was so intrigued by. So Asif had the chance to read your memoir. I could make an excuse and say, I didn't have the chance to read it yet, Biff, because I was actually touring, promoting my own memoir. Yes. However, it's a weak excuse because I had six years to read your memoir. So <laughs> really, that's a complete cop out. But Asif has been telling me so much about the incredible stories after stories. And I was reading about your writing process a little bit. And I can relate to so much about how you okay. were kind of reluctant at the beginning to share things about yourself. Can you talk a little bit about that? How that process went from reluctance to like final product that is really something special to read? Well, and congratulations on your book as well, by the way. Thank you. It is very difficult to write a memoir, even if you have a life that is a performance-based life. Or writing-based life. Writing lyrics, I have always been very open. You know, I've written songs about having miscarriages. I've written songs about being sexually assaulted, about having abortions, about sexism, girl-on-girl crushes, whatever the case. So I've never really, you know, I always thought, well, there's no secrets. I have no secrets. You know, it's nothing mind-blowing. And there are still stories that detail-wise that needed to be written. And it was very difficult, some of it. To write. And also, I mean, I wrote 200,000 words, only 50,000 made it into the book. And that was mostly, I always tease them because it was just liable, 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 no. red pen, liable, liable, liable. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you know, nobody cares. These people are either dead or in jail. They don't care if I'm saying, but anyways, the, the book that came out on HarperCollins now, at the time it was, I started writing 2013, it was three years of editing and writing and it came out in 2016 and now so much has happened since then that it just to me it just seems like only half my life when I turned 50 I realized that my life was just beginning and I really believe that and I think that's a combination of gen x resilience I mean I always say I'm a I'm a self-proclaimed gen x slut 
our generation of girls, we didn't have the Me Too movement because we didn't know anything was against the law. It happened to us. You know, it was just a rite of passage. And, and so then I, I've been in lots of different conversations regarding the memoir since the Me Too movement where people are just like, I argue if you don't take it on as a trauma, does that really mean that you are psychologically adept at blocking it? Or does that mean that you compartmentalize it? Things that happen in your life. There's a lot of people that think it's toxic to use humor as a coping technique. And I'm like, obviously, you've never been to a comedy club. You know, Mm, what are you talking about? This is why people survive life, because they find the funny in the circumstances that happen. I mean, you know that better than anyone. And that's why it's funny, because everyone can relate and it makes people feel better and carry on. I look forward to writing another one and hopefully having a maybe, a, you know, no editing skills at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's 150,000 uh, leftover words that yeah. weren't used in the first one that can uh, obviously help you out there. It's a little boost for <laughs> some of it anyway. It's very interesting what you're saying. You know, when you're a performer, you can do all kinds of, hello, my baby. Hello, my darling. You could do all the, but then talking honestly in a book form, I, I completely relate. I was listening to a, an interview with Mike Birbiglia, who's this comedian I love the other day. And he was talking about when he looks back, even at some of the things he admitted, he has this one man show, My Girlfriend's Boyfriend. And he yeah. talks about how he met this girl and he goes, I think I love you. And she goes, you love me? And he goes, I mean, I think you're pretty cool. <laughs> And he goes, I can't believe I admitted that. That's so loserish. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I spoke about it publicly. And I think when you look back, when you're in that writing process, you're like, do I admit this? What does this say about me? What do I, what do I want people to take away from this? Is this what I want? So I could totally understand the unearthing of like all this different kind of stuff. Well, can I ask a question? I should ask both of you because there is some removal, right? When you both are on the stage, because people, you can say, oh, I'm talking about my partner or wife or, or husband or relationship, but you always have the ability to say, yeah, but that was for a bit. Or Biff, you can say that was for a song. No, of course, I'm, that wasn't really me. I was, you know, that was a character I was playing. You still have that. But when you were reading your memoirs, that's it. It's done, right? There is, there's there is no, no veil. There's, there's nothing. No shtick, yeah. This is me talking about me, right? So I, I mean, I, I could never do it. That's for sure. It's, it does take a, a huge amount of courage, and so I don't know. Do you guys found that? I'm assuming like that difficulty. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely did. I found like, you know, you use the word veil, Asif, but I'm not sure veil is the right word for me. But I, I do think like there is this. Yeah, there's this cover you can put on when you have a shtick of some kind, right? It's all for jokes, no matter how serious it is. You can be like, I'm pretty sure people will think I'm joking. When I talked about how I was going to give my kid a beating and deep inside, I wanted to kick his ass and people would be like, he's obviously joking. And I can be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was obviously joking. You know, like it's not a, you can, it can all be just jokes. But when you put something in writing in a memoir format, you have to mean it. The the shtick isn't really there. Oh, absolutely. And for me, I wasn't, half the time I wasn't allowed to talk on stage either in between songs because I would betray my tough image. You know, we'd be on these big heavy metal festivals in Europe with all these, you know, I'd be the only female on the bill, which means as a natural overcompensator, I'm going to be like, you know, basically try and act like the devil up there as much as I can. And then in between songs, 
you know, I'm like, thank you so much for coming, anyone. Mm. And, you know, my managers were like, no, no, zip it, zip it in between. And, and with the memoir, yeah, there's the curtain is pulled back. The veil is lifted and the truth is exposed that I'm just the, exactly trying to be as polite as my mother. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned this before about the Merck Manual. People who don't know the Merck Manual, it's kind of like a, a medical textbook which has different categories. It's a combination of mainly a dictionary and an encyclopedia. It's just one volume and you can look up you know, various diagnoses or symptoms and read it. And it's funny, a lot of people read it, as you said, before, you got, before they go into medicine. And you talk a lot about medical textbooks in your memoir. You talk about you were thinking about going to med school at some point, right? You consider that as a career. So tell us about this fascination with medicine that you have. I blame my parents 100%. My parents are both academics, and my father was in med school at the University of Minnesota until he fell in love with a mandible, and that was it. He <laughs> dropped out of medical school and went to dental school, and he got his master's in public health, which, of course, they were bleeding heart socialists, my parents, and my dad loved public health, and he loved public health dentistry, and, and basically his life's work was training dental therapists in remote areas of the world, and that's what he did, and that's what brought us to Canada, is he went to Kuwait and Community College in Nepal and started training dental therapists up there, and he always he always worked in the Arctic, and we I want a kind of coming of age in Manitoba before mm. moving to Vancouver as an adult, but I, I think that for me, when we were first touring Touring is very isolating. And it was isolating for me just as a female, but also I learned quickly as a young performer that I couldn't drink alcohol. I couldn't. One tablespoon of alcohol, and I'm trying to tell everybody jokes. I'm laughing the loudest in the room, and I'm losing my voice. Mm. And I, I would lose my voice. I, can I talk so much? And I couldn't drink. And I also never wanted to be misinterpreted because I was the only female. I tour managed my own band. I, had, I was the only one that was sober to drive. And I just, I never drank. And so by the time we were on tour buses in Eastern Europe for weeks at a time or in the States for weeks at a time, the rest of the band would be partying on the bus and I would be kind of sequestered to my bunk, partly self-imposed, but partly because I had to get up in three hours and do morning radio in the next town or whatever the case. It's a, it's a really hard job. And so to go to sleep, this is, we didn't even have cell phones. To go to sleep, I would, I would read my guide to the MCATs, you know, because it was interesting. And it was something that always yeah. uh, was something that I always thought I would pursue. And, you know, as the years went on and I, as a performer, I mean, it's just such a perfect job for me. I love performing. I love writing. And like you're talking about Ritesh, I'm working with Ritesh again on his next record and I love it that we're on the Grammy ballot, by the way, for a prayer for the oh, mother, nice. which I, which I did with him last year. I love this work. I love what I do. But part of the weird thing about my life is like everybody, everybody's got a story. Everybody has medical issues, especially as we get a little older. I had, I always call it tit cancer cause it's funny, but I had breast cancer diagnosed when I was 36. And so at that time in my life, there was no Instagram. There was barely Twitter. There were very few breast cancer blogs at that time. But I was in a kind of a, an awful relationship. Breast cancer, cancer is the big reveal. So you get to see right away that your brand new husband is a schmuck. And so I started going back to the hospital when I wasn't in treatment because I kept getting asked to, oh, you're both naked. Can you come and meet this rookie patient who's having chemo for the first time? Can you sit with her during her chemo? And a lot of people would think that was a terrible ask. But for me, it was heaven. It was heaven. I loved 
I love the hospital. I shouldn't be a hospital administrator. I love the hospital <laughs> setting and I love oncology nurses and I love meeting rookies. And what I realized was I am built for being a medical chaperone. I'm built for it. I think that that's my calling. And over time, obviously, I don't have time to do that every day. But becoming a volunteer was the best thing that ever happened in my entire life. So I'm always happy that I had breast cancer. I mean, what a quote right there. I am always happy that I had breast cancer. But you are, you know, I was reading about how you are this optimist. You operate at a very joyful, optimistic level at all times. You start at optimism. You start high. And then that combined with your interest in the medical field, these textbooks and all that, do you think that helped you as well as uh, going through your breast cancer? I think so. I mean, you know, I, I was a pragmatic kid and, and grew into a pragmatic adult. I think that there's a lot of fear, especially at that age, that's like 15 years ago. When I came to realize there's a lot of fear that most people have when it comes to being in the hospital environment in general, never mind with cancer, you know, and that goes for patients and families, everything. It was just, I mean, it was such an amazing lived experience to have that I can bring with me to everything I do in life particularly to these rookie patients who were, their lives are thrown into chaos and their families' lives are thrown into chaos. And what wound up being the transition from that was being asked to go into the palliative wards all the time because I was a patient. So there was that peer-to-peer volunteerism happening, but also because I was biff naked and this person is at their end of life. Can you just come and say hi to this lady? And a lot of people, I learned quickly, that is a very They need a lot of support in palliative care volunteering. Obviously, it's not necessarily appealing to a lot of the volunteer people. And Mm -hmm. I was like, it's because of that need. They have such a need for it. I was like, that's my jam. Mm -hmm. Right there is my jam because it so badly needs bodies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered from that uh, when I moved to Toronto four years ago, that they had a program here that trained you to be a deaf doula. And I thought... This is why God made me. Like, honestly, this is why I'm here. Like, not being a Above and beyond music? I was like, this is amazing because I just thought this is so needed and not because necessarily because the patient needs a person. Sometimes the patient needs a person to be the liaison for the family or between the family and the doctor. There is just so much that we could talk about forever, all of the different needs that a patient has. But yeah, I just, it's just something that I was like, yeah, this is totally my jam. And then, of course, the pandemic started to unfold and those programs had to stop for two years. But now they're, you know, now they're back and uh, everyone's trying to restart all the things that we were trying to do. So it's cool. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about what a death doula does. I think, Asif, I think you have probably a better understanding than I do. I would say, you know, because I know what a birth doula is, a death doula is somebody who just basically assists someone in sort of leaving this world? Is that these are people who are in palliative care who are on the last days or weeks of their life? How does that work? It's such a big term. And and birth doula, there's also full spectrum doulas who do everything and help. But I think death doulas, my guess is that it may have started through the birth doula movement, which is like, it's just kind of a midwife, but also you're also providing some spiritual support, spiritual and emotional support, as well as everything else. I have discovered that sometimes a doula's job is not necessarily 
simply to assist the patient. Sometimes it's to relieve the patient from having to console the family every waking moment. Sometimes it's being whatever they need you to be, whether that is just someone to sit there and not talk or someone to go into sit with the family for a bit so the patient can rest mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's exhausting consoling people who are grieving you while you're alive still. And, and that's something that is a very real thing that happens to patients who are still with us and still cognitively aware. There's a lot of emotion and guilt and psychological histories that come with family dynamics. I mean, and sometimes the nurse needs you to wrangle the family so that they can do their job. I mean, it's just, there's so many facets to what is needed. You kind of have to be really flexible. It's not necessarily always about physiological stuff. A lot of times too, it's about some people have never had an opportunity to pray before Mm -hmm. and they might want something that is guided and something that is non-denominational or multi-faith. And so to me, it's just a fascinating field. There are so many aspects to making it a beautiful and meaningful experience, not just for the patient, but also for the family and for everyone involved, including staff on the ward. I mean, if you can provide just a little bit of relief, whether that is emotional relief, whether that is just providing and holding space for people, or if it's providing comic relief, whatever is is needed at the time mm-hmm. is basically what you can try and provide. Something you said really resonated with me, and that was this idea of treating people like they're dead before they're dead. I mm-hmm. mean, I, I'm just thinking my one of my very good friends was diagnosed with breast cancer a few years ago. And then I was, you know, when I heard, I was like so upset. And I was saying, you know, you, you've meant so much to me. You've helped me so much and all this stuff. And I'm thinking, well, She's still here. And so I wonder, was it part of those experiences you had where people kind of, that happened to you as well? Like people treating you like you were gone or mm-hmm. when, when you were diagnosed with breast cancer? Just or as good as gone, yeah. I think that it's very common for all of us, you know, when we're faced with somebody who's having a health crisis, for us as the person that's not physiologically experiencing that, it's going to bring up all those feelings that rise, whether it mm-hmm. is guilt, loss, fear. And, you know, a lot of family members do project their fears onto a patient. And one of the things that I always say to if I'm doing peer-to-peer volunteering with rookie patients, I always try and just say to be practical because people are going to, you're going to have to, as a patient, as a newly diagnosed patient, you have to understand you are going to be consoling your family Mm -hmm. when you first give them the news. Mm -hmm. You're going to be consoling your best friend. You have to console your children. That's something that you can't take personally or feel downtrodden about because there's a, of course you have a pension to go, Hey, I'm the one that is uh, going through chemo and I'm trying to make you feel better. But that's also the nature of humans. We want to console each other, no matter what's happening, no matter who's hurting, we still want to do that. And that's natural. And it is natural for people to project their fear onto you. And that's all it is. So that's a natural process. That's an exchange between human beings, whether one person or the other person is the patient. We as patients are going to have a job consoling the people that we love and that love us and reassuring them and reassuring them and probably having to do it again. And that's where it's always good for counseling to happen or family counseling because when you go through breast cancer or stomach cancer anything or a car accident whatever the health crisis is 
the whole family is going to go through it mm-hmm. with you or beside you or in spite of you, you know, whatever the case. There's a lot to unpack. A lot happens to a person. And because a lot happens to a person, a lot happens to the people around them too. I've been in medicine for 22 years and I've never heard that explained so well. So that was oh, absolutely, good. Uh, absolutely amazing. You know, It's just how it is. And I think that's how it is for all areas of our lives as human beings. Finding your sort of calling as a, as a death doula is a more recent thing, but you're obviously a very giving person that is in your nature. You're involved in quite a bit of charity work. I was wondering if you can tell us a bit about charities that you're supporting or have supported throughout the years. Not enough. You know, I always wish that I could be physically there. The good thing about the world that we live in, the good thing is social media. And why social media is good. A lot of people say, oh, it's talked and Twitter is talked and these things are terrible. I've never found that because what they are is a tool. And if there's somebody who has a GoFundMe page because their cat has a mammary tumor, the easiest thing in the world to do is to share it on your page. It doesn't matter if only one person sees it. Mm-hmm. and donates five dollars it's still something and so that i learned early on i did run for the cure with my breast cancer chemo group every year that i could and there were some girls who could only walk and we didn't raise sometimes we didn't even raise any money i mean i had work colleagues and family didn't even donate two bucks to run for the cure the first two years that we did it. i mean no one donate you email out the the form nobody donate and there's nothing you can do about that. You can still show up physically and go participate, but that's like anything in life. And that goes for anything that you're passionate about, whether it's charity work or whether it is putting your physical body in something. Yesterday, there were huge demonstrations all over the world to support our families and friends in Iran, for example. Just show up. During the pandemic, there was a 100% uprising, an awakening that was happening, bubbling, starting in the United States. And organizations like Black Lives Matter were at the forefront of that. And those were important events to show up at. And there were so many people who were terrified of the pandemic, did not want to take their physical bodies down there. You can still show up by posting it on social media, by donating. And I'm a big t-shirt buyer. We realized the other day I don't have a plain t-shirt. All I do is buy t-shirts from organizations that I want to promote. Yeah. And then put a picture of the shirt on social media. And I had shared with this with this one company, for example, last year. And they were like, well, our board of directors didn't like that. Didn't like it because it was just, I hate to say this, but it's just a picture of your breast. I was like, <laughs> I do that in every face. It's just the t-shirt, you know, because my face. So like, can you do a photo with your face in the photo? I was like, yeah, but the, so anyway, you can't win them all. But <laughs> I just think that any charity work you do is charity work. It doesn't have to be for an organization. Obviously, I I love animals. And so I, I try and support mm-hmm. and promote a lot of animal rights organizations. But at the same time, out of three husbands, I've never married a vegan. I'm the only vegan in the house. I do all the cooking. You know, my third husband married me for my vindaloo. <laughs> what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Force him to eat tofu? He's not going to eat tofu. It's not going to happen. So, I mean, you know, you can do what you can to promote what you want and support what you want, but just do the best you can. So with regards to advocacy, you know, October is a Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And I've asked this for a few of my friends because we're going to do a follow-up episode just specifically about the medical aspect of breast cancer. What do you think are the main things that you would want 
people to know, the average person about breast cancer or for advocacy purposes or things like that? What would be your message? So much to unpack. Well, anything is good. Breast cancer is still incredibly prevalent in our day and age. And people are like, it's not getting any better. My money's not helping. There's no why they cancer care. It's big pharma cancer. Yeah, so much money. Here's the thing, you know, women are still and men are still getting diagnosed because diagnostics are better. So they're catching more cancer. That's a good thing. As daunting as it seems, a lot of people don't want to support organizations that, for example, use pink or use the pink ribbon. They say, oh, it's a big corporate thing. And it's like, okay, that may or may not be true. All I know is among the women that I volunteer with, many of whom lost their lives and fought very hard and did a lot of a lot of treatment over a lot of years in their families. They had lots of hope. And the one thing that they really had that united them and made them feel hopeful was a symbol of a pink ribbon. Okay. And if you look at it, if you can look at it in terms of you know, in Christianity, it's the cross, right? That's just a symbol, really. And it gives people a lot of hope. And it's the same thing with the pink ribbon. If you've got a lady or her family that is all pink ribbons around their house or on their bumper stickers or on her t-shirt, man, support and encourage that and ask those people where they want you to donate or how you can help. I mean, breast cancer is, I believe that they will cure cancer one day, because I have to, because I have to have that faith, not for me, but for people that are alive behind us, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to broke in 50 years, you know, are they still going to be, be fighting these diseases and worse? It's very possible. But 200 years ago, people just croaked. Nobody knew why. And now everybody knows why. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we have made a lot of gains. As far as research, I mean, you know, research is really where it's at. And clinical trials are so important. If you can sign up for a clinical trial, please do. And I mean, when my dad died, he had prostate cancer for a really long time. And he said he loved it because it was a slow, the slowest cancer. Hmm. I love it. He said he wouldn't let them take his prostate out because he still wanted to give it to his wife. I was like, can you stop talking? But eventually it was the bladder cancer that was a probably a secondary cancer. I'm not really sure how it went for him, but he donated his entire body to University of Saskatchewan. He, he said, he goes, look at my body. My dad was kind of chubby. Look at my body. They want me. Like, how can I not do this? I'm like, that's what we should all be doing yeah. because research really is the way that they're going to, they're going to be able to cure everything. True man of science, sir. In the last few minutes of our talk, I will move the subject back to music. You released a single this year called Roller Dome. If you guys haven't heard this single, it's great. It's excellent. It's it's so fun. has this 80s synth vibe. So my understanding is it's going to be part of an upcoming album, Champion. But I've read a couple things about when it's supposed to come out, and it's supposed to be a triple album. This it all sounds very exciting. So can you tell us a bit about what's been going on with that? So Champion was a record that at the time that we decided to do Champion, it would have been my first record in nine years. Because really in this day and age, we can just kind of do what we want because the world is so digital. And I didn't feel pressured. I released an acoustic record and loved that. And because I could work it into a book tour and play the songs that each story was about in between. It was a long show, but it was great fun. And so we started writing Champion and it was ready to go for 2020. 
And the first single was Jim. It came out on uh, Valentine's Day with a video. And then the second single was Broke Into Your Car, which we released a year later. And the third single was supposed to be Roller Dome. And then the record would be released. But what happened was, as the pandemic started to unfold, and then George Floyd was murdered, and then everything else was more important to me than releasing a record. I just thought, I don't need to put my voice out there when all these other voices need to be amplified right now. And so we put it on hold. Then we were going to do it a year later. But then, of course, here in Ontario, as you know, there was a lockdown. Then there was a mandatory stay-at-home order. This ominous, looming health crisis, public health crisis was happening. And I thought, yeah, they don't need a record from me right now. People need to really focus on what they need to focus on. And so it got postponed again. And then this year, we released Roller Dome, which has been sitting there kind of waiting like an unwrapped present for a couple of years. And then we just kept writing and said, maybe we should. We have so many songs now and we're not handcuffed anymore like we used to be. With record labels, they like putting out 10 or 11 songs and that's an album and that's how it is. And now it's just like, yeah, now we're just going to put out three records at once and put it under the champion umbrella. And I think it's really, really fun to do it that way, especially now we've got this documentary um, that's being filmed with Jennifer Abbott. She's the director, if you can. She did Corporation and also a film that is absolutely a must see called The Magnitude of All Things, which is about her sister's breast cancer and grieving her sister and also there were the parallels between grief and climate grief and it is such a powerful and beautiful film that I really didn't feel even worthy of working with this director I cried watching this movie and you will too it is and not and uh, interestingly enough for the planet it's just so Mm. you have to see it to understand so Jennifer is doing the documentary. So it's, a, it's when you a really say the deal. documentary, tell people, and and we sh- will definitely have a little plug for the magnitude of all things. And both Asif and I will get on that mm-hmm. as homework. Awesome. Uh, that feels like it's uh, you know mandatory here. <laughs> but tell us about the documentary. What's the subject, and where does this take you? Well, you know, I felt very unworthy of a documentary. Obviously, like the book, it was not my idea. I just think that I'm very humbled that anyone wanted to make a documentary about my life. And I'm sure, you know, I can sit there and go, I can rationalize it and go, well, it's the adoption story and it's probably this and this and this. But the truth is, it's called Biff Naked, One of a Kind. That's the working title. Electric Panda and Scorgy Productions. I have been at the captain's chair and Jennifer is into it. Gabriel Nippur and Yas Talat, and of course my manager, Peter Carroll. And it's still unfolding. We started shooting a year ago on tour. And again, we're continuing to do this. We're hoping hoping by 2024, we'll be releasing. Is it a year in the life of, or is it your entire musical career or your life? Or is, uh, yeah, is it just all everything that makes you who you are? I honestly don't know because, again, it's Jennifer Abbott who is at the helm. So the film crew is coming over to France, and there's a lot of things in France. There's a big Hare Krishna movement, of course. There's an American hospital in Paris, and there's uh, a lot of yoga studios I'm involved in. So it's it's unfolding. I don't know how, and I'm I'm curious myself. I don't know what they're going to focus on. (laughs) Okay. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Well, you are definitely one of a kind, Biff. Thank you so much for 
it's like every single thing we asked you could have been an episode in itself. It feels like we're just scratching the surface of all these variety of different subjects. You're so incredibly thoughtful. The more you talk, the more I got a really clear sense of what you mean by life begins at 50 for you. Yeah. I get it because it just feels like this entire new, not just chapter, book, and a whole new thing is happening. And I don't mean the book that you will one day write, that second memoir, but I mean just really, you know, the metaphorical book is is all opening and there's all these new avenues that you explore based on the experiences you've had. It's quite wonderful to hear all about it. And that goes for all of us. Yeah, sure. I said a lot in my <laughs> memoir now. I'll need some time. I'll need some time to sit on it for a bit. But yeah, no, I, I think it does go for all of us. I think it's uh, it's true that, you know, when we were young, you know, I listen to my teenagers talk about like somebody they work with and they're like, oh, he's like so old. And then you do a little bit of digging and the guy's 31. Like, yeah. oh, right. Like when you were young, you can't help it. Like that's how you thought, like it's old and then your life is over by 50. But when you're in the middle of it and you're doing things that you love, it's, it's definitely not the case at all. That's the truth. And so you have an upcoming show at the Bronson Center in Ottawa, my, my yes, hometown uh, okay. on November 4th. So we're very excited. So everybody get your tickets for this show coming up. This should be very exciting. And then there's also a show in December in my hometown and your adopted hometown, Toronto Biff. Those details will come out soon enough, but you'll be performing at home closer to the holidays. I can't wait. Like, honestly, it's going to be so much fun. Well, that's awesome. We are going to take our listeners out on a little bit of Roller Dome, the 80s vibe synth pop song that Asif was mentioning. Before that, Asif, tell the people whose doctor you are. So remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening, and thank you, Biff. Thank you. You guys are awesome. Sitting at the back of us, four to two, staring out the window. 